welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Uh, we're in the, the finale of Luke, and we come now to Luke chapter 24, and verses 44 to 49, which is Luke's version of what you know as the Great Commission, the call of Christ on his followers to tell others about him. So let, let us hear together the word of God as Jesus explained this to the disciples. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is God's precious and life-changing word. May it have its great impact on our hearts today. Let's pray. Father, I pray in the time that we have that we will be taken back in time and that you will give me the ability, Lord, as a pastor teacher to help the people understand the meaning of this passage in that time and for that purpose. And then, Holy Spirit, move us to today and bring the application and the the reality of this to bear in our everyday lives, whether we know you as Savior or whether we're searching for you. Oh, Holy Spirit, more than anything, clothe me. Come over me as a pastor teacher. Have your way with your word, with your people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, if you're new with us, we go verse by verse through different books of the Bible, and we've been in the Gospel of Luke on and off for a while. <laughs> for a while. And in these final messages, we come to the finale of Luke. Uh, and uh, I've looked forward to this because Luke was an historian. He's one of the most well-respected historians in the ancient world, by the way, not just by Christians who read the Bible, but by secular historians. But he was also a master storyteller. And it's been so uh, enjoyable to follow life stories through the Bible, particularly the story of the disciples. And they go from knowing nothing to kind of knowing a little to being confused by it all. And here is a point in the gospel where Jesus brings it all together for them. And Luke, as a master historian, puts it all in order. And as a master storyteller, he, he brings such a beautiful art to it. As a, as a writer of the gospel, Luke really comes full circle to his original purpose. You ask, why did Luke write this gospel? I think there were two purposes. In 
You don't have to turn there, but in chapter 1 and verse 3, as he began the gospel, as we studied many moons ago, he talked about the fact that he wrote the gospel, number one, to set everything about the life of Jesus into an orderly account for the world that was interested in knowing about him. So he wrote it as a history. And yet there was also another purpose, and it's woven throughout, and that was he wrote it as a story of the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's throughout the story, and it began early in the gospel in the first chapter where Luke alone really tells the story of Zechariah, who was a priest in the, in the temple, who received a vision from God through, the, through uh, the appearance of an angel. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist, and a wonderful uh, vision was given to him about the coming Messiah who would be Jesus of Nazareth. And in that prophecy that was, or that vision was given to him, the Holy Spirit moved him to prophesy. And Zechariah made a great prophecy. And in verse 77 of chapter uh, 2, or pardon me, chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, if you go back there, you'll read that Zechariah said that this Messiah that was coming, who would turn out to be Jesus of Nazareth, will give the people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. One of my most favorite gospel verses. God and his tender mercy for a lost world, dying in sin, destined to face judgment, brought his son who would bring to people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of what he would do on the cross and what he would preach to the world. And this was all a tender mercy of God. Well, here the book ends with Jesus himself bringing all of that together, the history of his life, all the way from the Old Testament, And the saving story of his life work is all confirmed here in these verses. Jesus says in verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So that's the gospel story. And here Jesus at the end of this gospel and and his appearance to the disciples after rising from the dead puts it all into perspective. One of my favorite quotes uh, about the gospel comes from an old hymn writer, Frederick Faber. And he said, the music of the gospel leads us home. There's so many ways that that's true. If you don't know Christ, but you're longing to be forgiven by God, the music of the gospel you'll hear from me today could lead you home forever. But it also leads those that love Jesus home. And we always come back to the gospel, don't we? And it leads us into everything we ever need to know. And In my mind, as Luke came to the end and he was thinking as a writer about how to bring this all together, I think the gospel led this gospel home and it led him to bring it into this conclusion. Really, he has told a saving story for 24 chapters. And here he summarizes it in the words of Jesus and applies this saving story to the disciples and to us. And so my message today is about the saving story and how it's all brought into perspective here. And there are four understandings about the saving story of the gospel that I want to teach you from these verses. Now, there's a, a debate among commentators about when Jesus said this, because it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a repetition of what's known as the Great Commission, which Jesus gave to the disciples when he met them some days later in Galilee, just before he ascended. And 
This is Luke's version of it. And some commentators believe Luke skipped time here in verse 44. Remember in verse 43, Jesus had just appeared in the upper room as the risen Christ. Remember that from last week? Blew the disciples' minds and, and he stood there in, 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 in his resurrected glory and they reached out and touched him and came to believe that he had risen. Some commentators believe in verse 43 to 44, there's a skip of time and, and many days elapse. And this is toward the end of his Christ's ministry before he ascends. Others believe that it happened right in the room in the next breath. After Jesus showed them his body, they came to believe that he then kind of opened things further to them. I'm a little bit more inclined, although I can't be sure, to take the second of those two. I'd like to believe that verses 44 to 49 were in that same upper room and Jesus took their understanding a little bit farther that night. And he would do it many more times. The Bible says over 40 days in 10 post-resurrection appearances before he ascended to heaven. So Jesus reiterated what I'm teaching you today over and over again to the disciples and others. So the, the saving story was what Jesus preached after he rose from the dead for 40 days to people, the gospel. So let's take a look at it. And as I said, there's four understandings about the saving story. Go to your text now, and we begin at verse 44. Here's the first understanding. The saving story was Christ's story because he predicted it. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. See, there had been some confusion in the disciples' minds. We've learned that over the last few weeks. They weren't expecting Jesus to be crucified. They were expecting him literally to ride into town on a white horse in Jerusalem and take over for Israel and, and defeat militarily all of Israel's enemies in a great battle and, and to bring the kingdom to the earth right then. They were not expecting Jesus to be crucified, and they really didn't understand the resurrection. It was a concept that was only developing for them. So when Jesus was crucified, as I've taught you, it completely depressed and devastated all the disciples. They hid in an upper room, and they were alone in their grief and depression. In fact, two of them walked away from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus, totally depressed. Jesus meets them in his resurrected body and shows them that actually this whole crucifixion, resurrection story had been predicted by him over and over again in the three years that he had been with them. So the saving story was Christ's story. He predicted it. He said, these, everything, these are my words. What's the these referring to? All the events of, of recent time, my, the, the, the arrest, the betrayal by Judas, the, the, the false trials at the hands of the priests, the, the, the unjust trial at the hand of Pilate, the, the torture, the scourgings, the, the cross itself, the burial in the tomb for three days, and don't forget the resurrection. All of this was a shock to them, but he had told them over and over again that this is actually what I predict will happen. So he's trying to drive their minds back to this and help them understand that this was not a disaster. It was a divine plan. He predicted his passion and resurrection many times. Now, they'd resisted it because they weren't expecting it. Just a couple times, just to show you, stay right in the Gospel of Luke, and if you've got a Bible there, you can go back to Luke chapter 9, for instance, and in verse 20, uh, verse 20 of chapter 9, Jesus 
Peter declares who Jesus is, that he's the Christ of God. Verse 21, Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. And then verse 22, Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So this is early in his ministry with them. This is at least a year to a year and a half before the cross, and he's already predicting it. But notice, you go farther down to verse 44 in Luke chapter 9, and the disciples just cannot understand it. He repeats himself. He says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, verse 45. But they did not understand this saying. So Jesus was telling them over and over again that he was going to have to go to a cross for them, but he would rise again in victory over sin. So it, it just didn't compute. Now, now, why did it not compute for them? Because he wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. Did any of you get that just now? Some of you did. Anyway, Jesus Christ was not the Messiah they were looking for. They were looking for a political Messiah, and he was a saving God. Maybe Jesus Christ that you're looking for today is not the real Jesus. Maybe you're looking for somebody to alter, alter your life, but not deal with your sins. Oh, my, my friend, you getting your life right is important. You getting your sins forgiven is eternally important. Who are you looking for today? Make sure you accept Jesus for who he is. And he said, before all the other things that people look to him for today, he came as a savior. So he repeats to them, all of this are, was, was in the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now, there's two reasons, like I said, and I've already touched on them, that he did this. Number one, they needed to know that the crucifixion was not a human disaster, but a divine plan, because they had the wrong idea of it. And they were going to go out and preach the crucifixion to the world, so they needed to get it right. It was a plan that they needed to understand. Secondly, they needed to know the great reason Jesus came was a saving reason. This is so important. By, it's important because there are many reasons that people think Jesus lived. Lots of people who, who don't have a personal relationship with Jesus yet have ideas about why he lived. They accept that Jesus lived in history. They accept that he was a real figure in history, that he lived a real life before others. They accept a lot of what the Bible might record about him. But these people believe that Jesus lived as an ethical example more than anything else, that he was an example of humble love. Well, that's true, but there was also a message of coming judgment for the sins of men and women, and Jesus actually preached about that more than any prophet in the Bible. Did you know that? And he talked about eternal hell more than any prophet in the Bible. So you misunderstand Jesus if you think the message was just one of unconditional love. No, it was a message of full love, but also full warning. He was going to go to the cross to make it possible for people to taste the love of God. Some people think Christ came as an example of ministry to the poor or ministry of being justice 
bringing justice to marginalized portions of society. If you take a look at the life narrative of Jesus Christ, those are small portions. They are not the focus of what he did. Those are good things, but they are not the essence of why he was here or what he taught the greatest realities of life around. Other people just think he was an inspiring teacher that they can pick and choose from, draw some teachings from him like they draw some teachings from other inspiring teachers, and they leave him at that level. That's not what Jesus said about himself. He said, I have come to seek and to save who? The lost. So the saving story is what Jesus was all about. And if you're looking for the true Jesus, that's the story you're going to need to be listening for. You see, if Jesus was simply an ethical example or an inspiring teacher, If that's all you believe about him, then you can shelve him alongside all the other people in history that have been ethical examples or inspiring teachers. There's a lot of those people. And you can shelve him alongside all the others because they were just people who were good better examples than many of us and who were inspiring in their teachings. Shelve him. Put him up there with all the others. But if he if he came as the only savior of the world, you can't shelve him. You got to receive him. And then you're going to be compelled to preach him. That was his point with the disciples. So the saving story was Christ's story. He predicted it. He owned it. He said, this is why I really came. The second, the saving story, secondly, was the scripture story. It promised it. He goes further in verse 44. Everything that you've been confused by, my betrayal, my torture, my crucifixion, my death, and my resurrection, all of this was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And it all had to be fulfilled. So the second thing he says is the saving story was the scripture story. It promised it. It's an ancient story. Christ coming to the cross, dying for sinners, is the whole story of the Bible that you have in your hands or on the digital device you brought with you. It's all about his saving story. Did you know that? It's not a history book, not a principle book, not a wisdom book, not a poetry book, not a book that just talks about Jewish things. No, it is, it's about the saving story. So there's three questions that I would have. Is he said, the whole Old Testament, he was saying, told you this was going to happen. Now, they revered the Old Testament, but they'd missed it. Three questions I have about that. What did he show them about this promise? He says, everything written about me was in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Well, the whole Bible talks about Christ coming as Savior. I like what Leon Morris, Morris, the Bible commentator, said. He said, the solemn division of Scripture into the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is how the, the Jews of that time divided their Bibles, indicates that there is no part of Scripture that does not bear its witness to Jesus. Remember that. Jesus said, every part of the Old Testament talks about me. Now, he used a threefold designation when he said Moses, the law, and the prophets. That's the way the Jews, that was shorthand for them talking about the whole Bible uh, from from Genesis all the way through Malachi. The, The law of Moses was the first books of the Bible, the first five. The Jews call it the Torah. It's known as the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. 
Then the prophets, and they divided the prophets into two groups. They called them the former prophets. And believe it or not, that's all the history books from Joshua throughout all the books of history. Those were known to them as the former prophets. And then they called the latter prophets the ones that are more familiar to Christians, beginning with the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then running through the minor prophets like Hosea and Joel and Amos and others. So all the way through Malachi, the last book. So you've got the whole Old Testament in what Jesus is saying here, and he's saying they all talked about me. So um, maybe you've read through the Bible in a year. I want to ask for a show of hands, but that's a great thing to do. I mean, reading through the whole Bible just in itself, I don't care how long it takes you, by the way, that's a good thing. You don't have to do it in just a year. You can do it in three years if that's what it takes you or longer. But if you've read through the whole stretch of scripture, the next time you do that, and I urge you to do it again, The next time you do it, look for the saving story and you'll see it pop up in every portion of the Old Testament. People think the gospel is just a New Testament message. No, it's an Old Testament promise. It was always there. So, I mean, the second question, or just this first question, what did he show them about the promise? I mean, if you read back through the Old Testament and you start looking for the saving story, the story of a suffering Savior, you're going to see it pop up everywhere. Where did you find? Where would you find it in the law, for instance? The first five books written by Moses, where the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments and all the, the laws of sacrifice for Israel were put in place. Well, you find it in the, all the laws of sacrifice. In Exodus chapter 24, the Old Covenant was put in place and it was, it was based on a sacrificial system where, where, where innocent and flawless animals were sacrificed continually for Israel. Blood, there, there's literally one author said that that and, uh, for centuries, oceans of blood thrown through Israel, Israel's life to remind them that sin was serious and it required a sacrifice. It wasn't, wasn't something we could deal with in any other way. And so every time a sacrifice was made, it pointed to a final and full sacrifice who would shed his blood. Who would that be? Jesus of Nazareth. One of the great examples of that in, in, in the book of Hebrews the book of Hebrews in chapter 9 ties the Old Testament predictions to the New Testament reality. Hebrews 9, 13 says the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean, which they all did in the Old Testament, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ? So you see the connection, New Testament reality to Old Testament promise. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God. When did he do that? On the cross. The perfect spotless sacrifice, unblemished, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So the daily sacrifices pointed to the ultimate atoning sacrifice of Jesus. One in particular, the Passover lamb introduced in Exodus 12. That's one of the books of Moses. You remember that story, the blood put on the doorposts and and the the angel of judgment passed over and, and, and did not bring his judgment down upon Israel. Just before his death, Jesus Christ made it very clear that he was the Passover lamb. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is our Passover. 
He's the ultimate sacrifice that took the wrath of God so that we can be covered from the wrath of God and protected. So that's the, that's the law. What about the prophets? What about how they would write? Well, the prophets are full of the saving story. Along around Christmas, we bump into the saving story in Isaiah 7:14, where it talks about that there would be one born of a virgin who would go on to become Savior. He was perfectly and spotless without sin, born of a virgin, born without sin, the spotless Lamb of God coming onto the planet, born in Bethlehem, Micah 5:2. He was predicted to have, have been born there, that he'd be betrayed. All the, all the elements of the last hours of his life as the cross approached, the beatings he would take, the, the fact that he'd be spit on by the population his beard would be pulled from his face. Things that intimate were prophesied about Jesus Christ. He was marked out in history as the only one ever in planetary history to go through the things that the prophets said would happen to the one who would suffer as the savior of the world. Even down to the point where they were rolling dice at the foot of his cross to split up his clothing. That was predicted by the prophets. He'd be pierced, crucified, Psalm 22, Zechariah 12, and all the rest, talking about the details of his death centuries before it happened. And Isaiah 53 telling us the great purpose that the Lord would lay upon him the sin of us all. The Old Testament law, all the sacrifice, that was about the saving story. The prophets was all about the saving story of Jesus Christ, and it marked him out as history as the one that would come and rise from the dead, too. Did you know that the, the, that the prophets also predicted the resurrection? Hosea 6, 2, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. That's the whole eternal saving story in one verse. Then he talked about the Psalms. Well, the Psalms, you would think, well, they're just poetry. They're food for the soul. No, actually, they're filled with prophecies, too. Psalm 22, if you read it sometime is a point-by-point description of the physical experience of death by crucifixion in powerful detail, and it was written centuries before crucifixion was ever conceived. It was a point-by-point prophecy of the saving death of the saving Jesus and the saving story. Did you know the Psalms also teach the resurrection? One of the most famous was quoted by Peter in the New Testament as he connected the Old Testament promise with the saving story in the New. And he quoted Psalm 16, where he said, David said about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. That's the arc, the span of eternity in a few verses too. So the saving story, it's all been part of the Bible story. Next time you read it, watch for it. You'll see it countless times. So my second question, if this, that's true, why did he drive them back to that, that night? Well, I think he did it so they would have something to share with others beside their own experience. Now, that may be weird to you. I mean, Jesus Christ, in my opinion, had just appeared to them in his physical risen body. They had touched a glorious eternal body. They knew that he was risen in power. They were seeing something they'd never seen before, and they knew that he had defeated death. They had the experience of all experiences, didn't they? 
Why didn't Jesus say, now go and tell everybody what you saw in the upper room tonight? The reason he didn't tell them to do that was because an experience alone is not enough to share with a person. You see, if if it was an experience alone, the gospel would have died out when they did. Because there was only one, one set of original witnesses, and people could take or leave what they said. The gospel would have died out when they did, because you can't pass on an experience. Those of you that have tried understand it. You can't pass on an experience, but you can pass on a timeless objective record. You can pass on an entire set of Old Testament promises that promised that all this would happen and history that proves that it happened and eyewitnesses who were there when it happened and you put all of that together and that becomes a record you can pass on. And that's what he gave them. He said, everything you've experienced, everything you're experiencing right now as you see me in my risen body, it all had promises in the Old Testament for centuries. It's all been backed up by history today. And it's in my word. It's in the Bible. And so what do you share? Do you share the experience? You talk about the experience, but you show them where it was promised in the Bible. It all comes together. When somebody shared Christ with me, I could see that they, were, they had an experience that was different than me. I was a depressed, angry person without hope, pretty vicious at times toward people of faith. They were joyful. They had a resiliency about them. They had a purpose in life. They were able to forgive me as I attacked them. And they had an experience. But that's not what, what, what changed my life. What changed my life was hearing from the Bible that their experience was tied to an objective promise, objective reality. It was what the Bible promised would happen if they trusted Jesus. It was what history said happened to people that had trusted Jesus. And they said, if I trusted Jesus, the same thing could happen to me. So I didn't trust in an experience. I trusted in truth. Does it make sense to you? I trusted in something that, that, it, that was in an objective historical document that had proven the test of time, that had eyewitness testimony tied to it, that history proved happened, and I put my faith in that. And Jesus came into my life. And then he did change me. But I didn't get saved by an experience. I placed faith in the truth. Then, as the risen Jesus... He swept into my life. You would expect somebody who's alive and well today to sweep into your life, wouldn't you? Some of you, please. Yes, of course. They said, trust us. If you believe in the gospel, turn from your sin and trust him as your savior, he'll show himself to you. He'll prove himself to you. And you know what? He did. He did. But it's not based on experience, it's based on the truth. Dr. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary said this, the final source of peace and assurance is the word of God. So our Lord opened their understanding of the Old Testament scriptures just as he had done with the Emmaus disciples. After all, listen to this, the believers were not being sent into the world to share their own personal experiences, but to share the truths of the word of God. So important that you understand that. We today cannot touch and feel the Lord Jesus, nor is it necessary that we do so, but we can rest our faith on the word of God. So that's that's the big, big factor here. Now, the third question I would have is not only why did he show them about this promise and why why did he build it on, on, on 
facts, not just experience, but how did he show them? This is interesting. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. How did he show them this objective truth? Now, this may blow your mind, but he showed it to them supernaturally. This is important. The Bible is the only source of objective truth that when it is opened, has a supernatural source behind it that comes with it. He opened their minds to understand the word of God. You see, people need God's help to understand the scriptures. The Bible is not like any other book, Dr. Henry Morris writes. While it is easy enough to be understood by the sincere and diligent believer who now knows Jesus, it is often incomprehensible foolishness to the unbeliever who does not yet know Jesus. Because 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They are spiritually discerned. But when Christ, by his indwelling hope and Holy Spirit, opens our understanding, only then do we understand the Scriptures. Maybe that was your experience, if I can use that word carefully, after you trusted Christ. Maybe you came to trust Christ as I did as an adult. When I tried to read the Bible before I had placed faith in the gospel, I'd sit, you know, I'd, I'd attack Christians during the day, and then I had one copy of the Bible that had been given to me years before, and I would sit and try and read it at night. And it was, don't be offended, but it was like I had spiritual dyslexia. All these things that the Christians understood, I couldn't make sense of to save my life. I'd read it over and over again. But after that wonderful midnight when I trusted Christ, I noticed the next day when I went back to that New Testament and I opened it up, it was like a spotlight had been lit off in my brain. And I began to see it, and I read chapter to chapter, verse to verse, chapter to chapter, and I began to see it all come together. Now, why is that? Because the Bible teaches that when you become a born-again Christian, the Spirit of God comes to reside within you, and He illuminates the Scripture. It's called the doctrine of illumination. That's what Jesus was doing for them. He was opening the aperture, shining the floodlight, and helping them to understand that meant to put one thing together with the other in the Greek. And it's in the present tense. It means they began to connect one thing after the other, after the other, after the other. And they saw everything about the saving story in their Old Testaments, and it became coming into their lives. It's like turning on the light. Maybe that's happened for you as a Christian. In fact, let me just put it this way. I'm just going to be very blunt. If you're a Christian and you do not have that happening with you, we need to talk. Because the Holy Spirit, his role is to turn on the light. Dr. Richard Mayhew, who was a mentor of mine in my early years of ministry and went on to become the dean of Master's Seminary, I think this is from his book, uh, cutting it straight about Bible teaching. He says, Scripture tells us that we need God's help to understand God's Word. 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit is from God, that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. 1 Corinthians 2. He says, theologians call this illumination. We use the expressions, it just dawned on me, or the light just came on. Yeah, to describe darkened thoughts which later take on a new understanding. God's Spirit does that for us with Scripture, end of quote. 
A.W. Tozer, grand old man of the past who taught the Bible, he said, the Bible is a supernatural book and can be understood only with supernatural help. Don't forget that. Charles Spurgeon, over almost, well, 150 years ago, said the best interpreter of a book is usually the person who wrote it. No, he was a master of just, there it is. Right? The Holy Spirit wrote the scriptures. Go to him to get their meaning and you'll not be misled. A modern voice, John Piper, he said, if God does not open our eyes, we will not see the wonder of the word. We are not naturally able to see spiritual beauty. When we read the Bible without the help of God, the glory of God and the teachings and events of the Bible is like the sun shining in the face of a blind man. How true that is. Before finding Christ, confusion to me. After finding Christ, light and more light. That's the privilege of the believer. And he was telling these guys, listen, it, the saving stories throughout your Bibles, you didn't see it till, na- till now. I am doing the work of the Holy Spirit today, and I'm going I'm to enlighten your minds. I'm going to bring the light on. Later, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, whom he, when he did in Acts 2, he's going to live within you. He's going to take over this. <laughs> Until then, never forget that. So are you asking God to show you the meaning of the Bible as you read it? Yeah. And are you asking God to bring the gospel and make it clearer to those who don't yet know him so that they can understand him fully? Here's an, I know I got to run now and I knew I was going to get behind. Please be patient. Here's the last two. Go back to the text. Third thing about the saving story is that it's our story. It's been given to us. Go now to down to verse 40. Well, we'll go through verse 47 and 48. So Jesus talks about the saving story. He opened their minds, verse 45. He repeats the saving story of the gospel in verses 46, 47. Thus it is written, Christ should suffer, third day rise, Repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And here's the punchline. You are witnesses of these things. So now that he's gotten their heads right, now that he said it's not an experience, it's objective biblical truth, now that he said that I'll be with you to open their minds when you teach it to them, you go out and be my witnesses. You are witnesses of this. New concept to them too. Because all teaching in their life had been done previously by a very privileged and deceived set of people called the rabbis. No ordinary Jew taught anybody much of anything. He's saying, oh, no, you are going to be the witnesses for this. You're going to be bringing this out to the whole world. So really, he's building a whole argument here. If you look at the passage this way, so far he's given them the strategy, and that was the, the fact that that this whole saving story had to happen, and it was about me going to the cross. The source, which is not experienced with the scriptures, now he tells them who the soldiers are going to be. Them and us. He gives them two things. Number one, he tells them, you're going to be carrying a timeless message. What's the message of the gospel? That Jesus Christ suffered, verse 46, on the third day he rose from the dead, and repentance and forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in his name. So what are, the, what are the, the, the aspects of the gospel there? Well, repentance is one, metanoia, meant to have a change of mind. And in most of the New Testament uses, is, it's pretty clear that it's not just a change of your mind, but it also implies a change of direction. Toward what? Toward you being God of your life. Toward the sin that come out of that. And toward him as Lord of your life, looking to him. 
Forgiveness is, is of course, the, the other tone of the bell of the gospel. As we come to him, we experience the forgiveness of sins. Aphiemi in the Greek, it literally meant to send something out of your sight. Isn't it wonderful? That no matter what you've done, who you've done it to, how many times you've done it, how much you can't even bring yourself to think about it, when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, all that sin is sent out of his sight because it's paid for by his suffering on the cross for you. You say, well, I just can't get it out of my mind. Well, I'll tell you what, God's left it, God's, God's taken it out of his mind. What a wonderful thing to be forgiven like that. So it's a timeless timeless message. But secondly, it's, it's a timeless method. He just says, you're going to be witnesses. Now, what's a, what's a witness? It's one person telling another person what they've seen or heard. That's it. You say, well, boy, in this day and age, I think I have to be a philosophical and theological expert before I really try and tell anybody about Jesus, because you know how hostile it is in our world today. No, it still comes down to you saying what you believe the Bible taught and telling, telling about the Jesus you met. That's what our, it, it, it comes back to that. Again, go back to Dr. Worsby in his commentary. He said, a witness is somebody who sincerely tells what he has seen and heard. As Christians, we're not judges or prosecuting attorneys sent to condemn the world. We are witnesses who point to Jesus Christ and tell lost sinners how to, how to be saved, how to find him. He goes on. He says, people don't come to Christ at the end of a piercing argument, usually. He says, Simon Peter came to Jesus because Andrew just went after him with a simple testimony. You see, we, we complicate and level up so much of what it means to tell somebody the gospel. Bring them the truth. Show them the objective truth. Tell about what it meant for you to meet Christ in your life. Be a witness. Be a witness. It's the timeless method. And that's how the gospel has spread for 2,000 years. So there must be something working. You ever think about that? Oh, how are we going to deal with this secular, hostile generation? Nothing like this has ever been faced by Christians before. We might as well just be quiet till we can get it right. Never has the world had bigger challenges to the Bible than it does today. Never has science been a greater worry to Christians than it is today. Never has the philosophical system been more intent on destroying faith today. Never has our system brought such dark arguments in the minds of young people today against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, the Lord Jesus has seen it all. Church, the churches throughout history have seen it all. And Jesus has answered, he, he just says, just be my witness. My gospel has spread for 2,000 years. It's not captive to a method or an institution or a denomination, and it will not be defeated. Didn't Jesus say the gates of what? Will not what? That's right. They won't prevail over his church. Just be a witness. Be like the students that we, we saw in the testimonies. How, how refreshing that was. That's what they understood, the basics of the gospel, so that girl could recite it in an acronym. And, and that alone ties it to fact, and it lets her tell her story. It's the gospel, my friend. 
And he said, by the way, this is good, not just in any generation, but to all nations, the end of verse 47, to ethne, to every people group, every language group. And that's what's happening in the world today. People worry about it. They look at all these institutions and political movements and everything else. And, and you know what? The gospel has outlasted all of them. The gospel has outlasted every economic philosophy. It's outlasted every government philosophy. It's outlasted every status philosophy. It's outlasted every nation state. It's outlasted every culture. And it still is conquering hearts. And it's going from people group to people group, language group to language group. We send out missionaries from our church all over the world to minister the gospel to new people groups that don't yet have the gospel in their language. And we're seeing the promise of Jesus being fulfilled. I don't have any worries about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't want you to either. Now I must run to close. Here's the last. And that is that the saving story is the Spirit's story. He empowers it. Don't forget what he says here at the end, verse 49. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The promise of the Father, what's that? Well, it's actually a who. (laughs) It's the power of the Holy Spirit that he would come and indwell people in the age of the church. And he would be over their teaching of the gospel and they're growing to be like Jesus. So don't run out with the story until you bring the storyteller with you because he empowers it all. Ever the perfect teacher, Jesus brings it all together. You might think that they'd already been told enough. I mean, we understand the strategy. We, 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 get, we get the meaning of your crosswork now. We understand it's all linked to the Old Testament. The Bible links it all together. And we understand we're the soldiers. Let's get after it. Maybe even Simon Peter, rustling on the back of the room, was even a little motivated. But he says, you, may can, you can have the strategy and understand the source of my, as, that's my cross and you can want to be good soldiers, but if you try and share it without the Spirit, you'll fail. No, you wait. Behold, I'm sending the promise of the Father. Stay in the city till you're clothed with power on high. And when did that happen? Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon them as believers, waiting for that promise, And after the Holy Spirit came, did they speak? Oh, yes. Did people hear? Oh, yes. Were people eternally changed? Oh, yes. And the world changed, and those of us sitting in this room today, 2,000 years later, are proof that it's still going on. So don't forget the Holy Spirit. You need Him to be over every gospel conversation you have. I love that phrase from the students. You need it to be over every moment and every, every point where you're bringing the gospel to a lost heart because it's not just facts. With him, it's power. Now, how much do you need him? How much do you need him? I love the turn of phrase at the end of verse 49. Until you are clothed. Isn't that complete? Clothed. Covered. Nothing that's not covered by the Spirit. Now, I'm not talking about any wild experience or strange, you know. Clothed means you need Him totally. You just need to ask Him to be the power behind the preaching. And that's His number one job. 
It's to make much of Jesus and to empower the gospel. And that's what he's about today. He'll be with you. He must be with you. You never talk somebody into the kingdom. You never persuade somebody in the kingdom. You never apologetic, apologetically reason somebody into the kingdom. He, he touches their lives. Don't forget it. So that's the saving story. It was on Christ's heart all the way through how he lived his life. It was on Luke's heart all the way through how he wrote his gospel. And it was on God's heart in terms of how he wrote his whole book. So my question as I close is, how much is it on your heart? Now, listening to me, you might say, well... I don't want to become too much of a fanatic. I don't want to tell people too much about Jesus. You know, I've got some relationships that might be a little resistant to that. I don't know everything. I don't want to be overbearing. I've opened with one of my favorite quotes from a hymn writer. Let me close with one of my favorite quotes from an evangelist. His name was Leonard Ravenhill. He was quite the evangelist intense, traveled all over the world, boldly preaching Christ and influenced many people in my generation like Keith Green and people in the the present generation like Paul Washer and others. You may disagree with different points of where these people come from, but they all do passionately preach the gospel. Leonard Ravenhill said this once. He says, many pastors criticize me for taking the gospel so seriously. But do they really think that on Judgment Day, Christ will chastise me saying, Leonard, you took me way too seriously. (laughs) Take the risk. Take Jesus too seriously. Take the gospel too seriously. Put yourself out there in a situation where if God doesn't come through in his presence and power, you might have a problem and see what happens. Because it is the only saving 